0: i Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author DDS Dobson-Smith. He's author of You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. Belonging is an archetypal experience that we all seek. In the workplace, a sense of belonging will only happen if you have both diversity and inclusion. When you facilitate diversity in hiring practices and instill inclusive policies, procedures and behaviors, your organization has its best chance of creating a culture that supports a sense of belonging for everyone. Diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a behavior. Belonging is an experience. Diversity is a fact in that you can look around you and note that there are people like yourself alongside people who aren't like you. Inclusion, meanwhile, is a set of behaviors, frameworks, or approaches that promote psychological safety and connectedness among team members. DDS Dobson-Smith is a licensed therapist, author, executive coach, speaker on leadership and growth. They are the founder and CEO of Soul Trained, an executive coaching and leadership growth consultancy. Welcome to the show, DDS. Nice to have you on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. That was a lovely
1: introduction.
0: Good. All right. Well, that's where we're. That's our jumping off point, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> diversity and inclusion. I mean, that's the key, mm-hmm. right? Belonging is an experience. Um, yep. I, you know. Yeah. And I. Th- I mean, those are. As I'm looking and at at your, at your uh, book and uh, the introduction that I did, I think about is that the direction we're going in? I I feel so sad because I feel like as a culture, we're going in the opposite direction from diversity Uh and inclusion. And um, I don't like to start off in a negative, uh, (laughs) but I want you to address that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I I, I think um, I think there's the there's the kind of archetypal experience of two steps forwards, one step back, um, which can often feel regressive. Um, when actually, when you take a step back and look at the big picture, it, it is progressive. And you know, I do want to acknowledge that there has been so many strides made um, in this space. And where you know today. Black, brown, indigenous, Asian people, queer people, disabled people see themselves on television in in adver- in, in adverts um, and um, and and yet at the same time uh, we still have um, we still have progress to make um, in the space of equality for women and other uh, historically excluded identities in the workplace. We still have legislation um, that exists. Um, we still have systems that oppress. So, yeah, I, like I can appreciate why you feel like it's going backwards, and um, and and I also I also I, I also have hope because um, you know, aside from what's happening um, in the Supreme Court, aside from what's happening in various states like Florida and Texas right now. Um, you know, we have have moved forward um, and the march towards um, equality and equity um, continues.
0: Of course, I'm honing in on being a woman. And as a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, that's half the population, which includes women of color, queer women, disabled women, all of us, right? Half of us are now being told that we do not have the right to choose and make decisions about our own bodies. That includes a huge population. Yeah. And then I'll stop. It's shocking. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's shocking. But okay, let's get to how we've moved forward and how we can continue to move forward because that's what your book is about.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, we continue to move forward and I think that the, the, the the best The best way that we can move forward at an individual basis is through personal education um, and becoming increasingly aware and cognizant of the experiences of people who are not like us um, and at a the systemic level, I think we've seen um, we've seen the power of cooperation. Um, or corporations and, and corporates over, over the years of how they have been able to sway political opinion um, and have been able to, you know, um, uh, cause changes in or, or catalyse changes in laws. And I think big corporates, um, well, any any company has a role in a significant role in being able to push forward towards, um, equality. Um,
0: and you've had a lot of experience in that. I mean, that as I, you know, looking at your, uh, resume, I guess, uh, like you've had a lot of experience obviously in the corporate sector. So let's talk specifically about that. What are the policies, the practices, the behaviors, the organizational infrastructure in a a corporation Mm -hmm. that can lead to what we're talking about this culture of belonging?
1: Right well as you as you said in my introdu- in the introduction you know there there is a simple equation that i follow which is diversity plus inclusion um can can equal uh belonging and when we have a climate of belonging in an organisation then it is likely that we will be able to attract the right people we'll be able to keep the right people and those people will experience psychological safety in the organisation which will lead to Improved innovation, improved productivity, um, and therefore in, improved profitability. Now, getting there um, is somewhat of a of a journey, and it starts with diversity and representation. Um, so, diversity is a fact. You, the organization either is or is not diverse. There, there is there's, there's no dressing it up in fancy statistics. Um, you if you if you look at an organization at all levels. Can you see people of all different walks of life represented? If the answer is yes, then then it's likely that that organization has a diverse and representative workforce. If it doesn't, then it needs to change that. And that starts with owning the truth of where the organization is. Is the boardroom full of white, pale men? Um, And if it is... Then, decisions have to be made around recruitment and restructuring and and changing and and over time changing that structure and When I say over time, I don't mean over periods of decades or half decades; I mean over time within a year or two um and there are there are in the book there are there are many practical tips around how to um, uh, i guess bake in to your recruitment and selection processes. Um, ways to counteract the social biases that we have towards the majority social group, um, i.e. straight, white, cisgender, able-bodied men.
0: And I wanted Um, to interrupt you there because I think one of the things, and and maybe people, uh, I I think that the audience needs to know this, because many companies will have, you know, on paper or even in their practices, they they hire diverse they have a diverse groups of people working in their organizations but then it stops there because even though those people are there they're not included and that's a whole that's the second part so i I know you're going to talk about that but i think it's important yeah because uh it's it one can be fooled by just having a diverse population but the policies of the company are not inclusive right
1: right Right. Well, that's that's exactly the point. Once you have once you have established a diverse organization that that those quote unquote diverse hires um, are only going to stay at the organization if they experience inclusion and inclusion is a behavior. It's the way the organization behaves and it's way it's, it's it's the way that the people within the organization behave. And so organizational behavior, policies, protocols, platforms, do they support um, the diverse hires that, that have been made? Whether that's through um, particular policies to support family um, and healthcare, um, to to, um, to support um, queer people, particularly trans people if they're transitioning in the workplace, um, and, and so on, and and also the the way in which behave uh, the people behave in particular, the leaders of an organization. And I've always said, well, for a long time I've said, that the, the climate of any organization is going to be shaped by the worst behavior you're willing to tolerate in a leader because we copy, you know, we follow suit, um, and we observe our leaders. And if we see them behaving in inclusive ways, we are going to do the same.
0: Can you give us examples of where, I, I don't mean necessarily – uh, you know, pick out specific companies, but where uh-huh. th- these things are probably it's best to start with where they're not being done and how that happens, how that plays out specifically in an organization uh, that diversity inclu- and inclusiveness are not part of the policies of that particular mm-hmm. uh, company. What would be examples well, I, of that? I- yeah.
1: Yeah, an example. An example might be um, in, in a company that that doesn't have a policy that, that that describes how that company will treat a trans person if they are socially and medically transitioning in the workplace. Um, it, it, it's another policy, a different type of policy with, with family care. If it if if we don't, if a company doesn't offer. The father of a child similar rights to the mother of a child in terms of time off and paid time off. Then what we're what that company is doing, uh, perhaps unwittingly, is further compounding the social roles that have been created. That the mother is the person that has to stay at home and take care of the children, and the father is the person that goes out to work. And that doesn't even account for if it's a queer couple, a, you know, a same-sex or mixed-gender couple same-gender couple that are raising children, like, how are those policies applied? Um, or, it, it, or if a same-sex couple wants to adopt, how is family time off um, arranged uh, for, for those people? And then it's, it, it goes into the space of making accommodations in the workplace for, you know, I think sometimes we only, we only use the phrase disabled it, which in a, in and of itself is an ableist word because this person is only disabled because of the ableist um, or the kind of infrastructure that is set up for people who don't use wheelchairs um, or that have full access and to the range of their physical attributes. So it's it, it's policies like that um, that that I'm that I'm really talking about. And then it's also down to some of the kind of real behaviours. I, I was. I, I had. Um, I, I, I can speak about one client who I won't name, who is a woman, who is in a very senior position, um, and she found herself on an email chain um, with um, everybody else on the email chain um, had um, was a man, and um, there were some people on that email chain that had never met my client before, and they immediately ass- assumed that she was an executive assistant and started asking her about. Coffee and tea and venue arrangements and this woman is in a C-suite role, uh, and so there's there's even there's like microaggressions, like very unconscious level behaviours. Um, I remember once as a as a facilitator of a of a of a you know of a C-suite um, away day, um, there was there was a group of people standing at a flip chart doing some brainstorms, and I went to hand the only woman in the group a pen. And I caught myself at the last minute playing into that, oh, it's the woman that's gonna take notes. And and instead I diverted my hand and gave it to the most senior man in the group and said, How about you take notes for us? And and when we don't catch ourselves in those behaviors, in those moments, we are kind of deepening um the, the the challenges and the harm that we're doing and we and so it's, it's both the policies as well as the behaviors of people in power that need to I change. think that's a great in example and giving that yourself as
0: an example because that concept of, or that uh, uh, responsibility of each one of us to be aware because some of these behaviors, yeah. it, just, you know, you're giving the pen to the woman or whatever, the pencil, it's kind of, in our you know, it's centuries of our of being in our it DNA. Is. We have to extract that. it.: is. Yeah, it is. And yeah. even though, yeah, we have good intentions, we know what we want to do on a cognitive right. level, but we do just what you described. And so awareness yeah. is, yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. It is, it is, as you said, Catherine, it's centuries of unpicking that we need yeah. to do. Um, and that will only be done if we are willing to catch ourselves being wrong. And to take accountability for the impact um, that we're having, to place greater focus on our impact rather than our intention. And when we do wrong and when we do cause harm, we take accountability for that by saying, um, I take accountability for my impact and I'm sorry that I impacted you in that way and I won't do it again. Um, you know, I'm pretty tired of hearing pseudo apologies that that say, well, I didn't mean to and it wasn't my intention. You know, nobody gives gives a fluff about your intention because it's the harm that, the, that, that, you know, it's the impact that causes harm, not the absence of intention.
0: Right. So just to, I don't know if I'm reiterating or we can go on from here, but you have to be aware of your, so, the social conditioning, which is what we're talking about. Right. And as you say, right. dismantle these internalized racism, sexism, heterosexism, yep. all of that stuff. We gotta get rid of it. Of and we that. have yeah, and we have it's to know that part. we have it and stop denying that we don't have it because we do have it uh, in varying degrees. You know, what about the practical? Yeah. Let's Yeah, okay, we don't have a lot of time left. So what about the practical? The person who's listening and running a corporation, okay, so, okay, fine, this is good. I believe in this. This is a good thing. But how does that affect my bottom line? Because I'm running a business. I have to make money or I have to do whatever the, you know, the business yeah. is supposed to be doing. So uh, what's the impact if we, if we uh, follow what? we've been talking about what your book is about
1: well it's 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 i mean there are there are many there are many data sets and and kind of formula that we can pay attention to but the bottom line is this when when you have an uh, an organization in which people experience psychological safety and and as though they can belong then your attrition will be reduced and your happiness will be increased or your employee engagement will will be increased there is, you know, I think many, many years ago that retail chain Sears produced uh, something called the, the, the value-profit chain that, that, that drew a line between essential or drew a connection between um, happiness, productivity, and profitability. And then when you decrease your attrition, you're also decreasing your, your, your recruitment costs. I think the the Society of Human Resources um, Management um, estimates that to replace a role it costs a minimum of the 50 per, 50% of the of the salary of that role to replace it and that's not only recruitment costs but it's the lost costs or or lost revenue in terms of productivity um, it's also the the lost money in terms of the knowledge that walks out the door every time an employee leaves so you know the the business clay, the business case is really really clear from that perspective and there are many other reasons why a CEO or a leader of a business would want to pay attention to this on a, on a kind of practical bottom line basis.
0: And would you say that, uh, given, uh, the climate, the financial climate that we're in right now and inflation and, uh, hiring practice and difficult to even hire people now and, and having to hire them in different ways, working at home part, mm-hmm. to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that also it becomes even more critical that, hundred percent, Catherine. Yeah,
1: hundred yeah, percent. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a big narrative out there at the moment about this, this phenomenon called the great resignation, which I have reframed uh, as the great realization. And by that, I mean, people are realizing that they want more from their workplaces and people are asking themselves the question, am I, am I experiencing, is, is my work bringing me meaning and purpose? And do I experience belonging in this workplace? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to double down on my commitment to this workplace and if the answer is no I'm voting with my feet and going elsewhere. So I don't believe there is a shortage of talent at the moment. I just believe that talent has become more discerning and are asking different questions of current and future employers. And the and the companies that are that are doing this right are the ones that are going to win in this economy.
0: Can you name the companies that are doing this right? Or some of them <laughs> or one of them <laughs> or two of them? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when I when I look in the world of advertising, I think there's a there's a you know there's a huge there's, there's a huge um, holding company called WPP who seems to be doing really really great things in the space of inclusion and belonging and working hard in in very real material ways to transform the experience that that its people have of working there. At a at a lower level, you know, at a smaller kind of independent level, there's an amazing shop based out of San Francisco called um, Just Global, who you know who is that is a people first B two B global uh, advertising services agency. You know, and then you look at some of the the big organisations um, that it, that are doing this well. I mean, um, it's it's hard it's hard to tell um, because everyone you know when you've got a big organisation opinion and experience becomes increasingly diverse but you know i think google does a great job or or at least does tries to do a great job um in this space um so you know i i i'm not the kind of person that likes to name organizations that i don't have a person like a my own experience of being on the inside of so those are just three places that i would that i would say that i think are doing it well at the moment
0: okay well i think that's okay because you're this is a positive you're You're talking about them in a positive way, even if you're not in the right. corporation yeah so yeah. Yeah, right so what um what do you what would you say i guess in your because you have had experience uh, let's talk yeah. about you know some of the yeah the, the the experiences that you've had had both negative and positive within uh-huh. the companies that you've worked in
1: yeah, I mean. You know, there was throughout throughout my career, um and you know, people can look at my <laughs> look at my LinkedIn and my resume to see where I have worked. Um, but throughout my career, um, as a member of the the LGBTQ um IA two plus community, um, you know, I have been on the receiving end of 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 regular microaggressions where somebody has t- turned to me and said, You know, D D S, do you think you could just tone it down a little bit? And it's when I've digged into that, that's been code for, could you be less gay, please? Mm -hmm. And it it wasn't until, uh, you know, 20 something years into my career, when I was at a C-suite level, when somebody said that to me, um, what did I feel like I had the kind of the hierarchical power in inverted commas to be able to turn around to this person and challenge what they said to me? And 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 you know, I and, and so twenty years I've been on re- on the receiving end of the. Could you tone it down a bit, please, EDS? Could you please be a bit, a little bit less gay, which is damaging. And it it wasn't until that moment when I was just like, actually no, I can do something about this. And I turned around to that person and said, well, could you be a little bit less straight, please? <laughs> and they said, I don't know how to do that. And I said, exactly. Okay. And and that put an end to it.
0: <laughs> yeah that's but, a good example. I know
1: I'm not alone. You know, I know I'm not alone. Um and um and so that that continues to happen to people the world over. Um mm-hmm. and if that's happening in countries that are like England or America that are meant to be welcoming and open and, you know, accepting, what does it what can it be like for somebody in a country where where their identity is legislated against um and 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 can put them to death for being for being who they are um, and, and just to know, add to that, that
0: you know as a woman sort of, the, of similar things are said could you be a little yeah. less aggressive could you tone it uh-huh. down a bit and uh-huh. uh not be so out there and uh yeah. you know there's that similar message i should say there is yeah, that similar,
1: i was yeah. um I, I was I was doing a fireside chat yesterday with um, with a group of women at an, uh, an advertising agency called Dept, which is a great advertising agency. Um, and um, the fireside chat was in, in, you know, in the scope of Mental Health Awareness Week. And one, one of the women said to me, how do I deal with the fact that I keep being told to be more joyful? <laughs> and 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 I think that's you know the the idea that a woman has to smile, has to look pretty, has to put her heels on and put her makeup on for for the good of somebody else to feel better about being around them boggles my mind and infuriates me. Um, so yeah, like I just want to acknowledge and and appreciate what what it was that you were saying there, Catherine.
0: Yeah, I think one of the mantras that I try to live by is uh, don't let other people define me. Don't let other people define you. Yeah. and we yeah, all, exactly. it, yeah, because I think it's easy to get yeah, into the one that. that.
1: I like is the the one that I like is those those that mind don't matter and those that matter don't mind.
0: <laughs> that's another good. Yeah, that's great. We have a couple minutes left. Um, so I, we hate I, you know, I hate to uh, end the interview because it's I mean, there's so much more to talk about, and obviously, people need to get out and buy your book. You can be yourself here, your pocket guide to creating inclusive workplaces by using the psychology of belonging. And we've been talking to the author, DDS Dobson Smith, um, DDS, Tell us where we can um, get more information websites. About the book and about your work, because obviously you're doing a lot of good stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Yeah, you, people can, can um, jump onto the website, which is www.soultrained.com. Um, there's some pages on the website. Um, one of them is about the current book that, that was released, uh, published in February, called You Can Be Yourself Here. You can also find information about my second book, which is coming out in September, called Leadership is a Behavior, Not a Title. And then you'll also find a page on there called Shift Happens, which has got tons of blogs and videos and, um, uh, and podcasts on there um, about my work and people that I work with. Um, and feel free to follow me on LinkedIn at DDS Dobson Smith.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was really, really great talking to you.
1: My pleasure. My absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience.
1: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time 11:00 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Are you looking for an hour to allow your imagination to soar? An hour for self-care? An hour to learn something new? Join Dr. Melissa L. Strausser for conversations and stories that'll give you that hour to listen to tales of triumph and conversations about emerging topics from coaches, entrepreneurs, entertainers, authors, and everyday heroes. You'll hear about healing, change-making, resilience, and passion. We invite you to take the journey and join us for Counterbalance Conversations on Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Stuart Shanker, author of Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society. Uh, For Stuart Shanker, the possibility of a truly just and free society begins with how we see and nurture our children. He is renowned for using cutting-edge neuroscience to help children feel happy, and think clearly by better regulating themselves. The paradigm revolution presented by Shanker not only helps us understand the harrowing time we are living through, but inspires a profound sense of hope for the future. He shares that there is no such thing as a bad kid or a fixed income and that all people can learn to self-regulate in ways that promote rather than constrict growth. He shows us how to build a compassionate society one mind at a time. He is a distinguished research professor, emeritus of philosophy and psychology at York University, and a best-selling author on the topic of self-regulation and child development. Welcome to the this, to this show, Stuart.
2: Thank you very much, Kathy.
0: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about reframed. Uh, what does that mean in terms of? What What is reframing exactly? What are we talking about in the context? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: well, we've had a, a revolution in neuroscience over the last 20 years. And essentially what's happened is we've been able to see processes deep inside the brain and how they influence how we think and how we act. This has turned out to be huge for our understanding of children's behavior because it's enabled us to distinguish between misbehavior and stress behavior. So misbehavior is when a kid does something on purpose, uh, testing limits, seeing what they can get away with. Stress behavior are behaviors that are caused by processes deep inside the brain. And when we reframe, what we're talking about is asking whether the behavior that we're dealing with is actually a a case of misbehavior or if it's stress behavior, something that's been caused. The problem here is that if it is, in fact, stress behavior and we punish that child uh, or, you know, we uh, seek to teach the kid a lesson, what we're doing is tremendously increasing the stress load on that child. You're actually harming the uh, whole stress response system. So that's what reframing is all about. It's learning how to distinguish when a child's behavior is caused, and the causes are always the same. The causes are excessive stress. So if we recognize that a kid is behaving in a way that's caused by excessive stress, then we start to figure out why. Why? What are the excessive stresses on this child? And how can we help this child learn how to deal with those stresses in a constructive way, in a way that leads to a happy and healthy future?
0: All right. Let's take the, let's go back and uh, look at a, uh, I guess we can go back to look at a toddler at two and a half is when they're, they're mobile. They make their, they try to make their own decisions and they're, and, and you know, they, what the terrible twos let's, that's what we've defined them as the terrible twos. So, Yes. Our attitude toward the terrible twos, as you're describing it, is not a good thing because we're blaming the kid even at two years old for the behavior <laughs> that's, that, exactly. that's, right? So what do we do? That's Let's start. Exactly what would right. we do if we're doing this reframing and, and it's stress behavior, not misbehaving? How do we handle it differently?
2: Well, it's a great question. It's the kind of question that a uh, social worker with a microphone <laughs> would ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, So what's happening uh, in the terrible twos is that the kid uh, is starting to stimulate themselves. Uh, A child needs stress, and in the first year, in the first year and a half, uh, the caregiver is the one who's really providing that stress in a sort of regulated way. And we do it all kinds of ways. We do it by smiling, singing. These are gentle forms of stresses uh, that wake up the nervous system. When the child becomes mobile, they start to um, seek out ways of stimulating themselves. But they're so young, they're really not very good at it. And so one of the things that happens is they overstress themselves. What that means is really important. Uh, When scientists talk about stress, what we're talking about is something that requires the brain to burn energy, in order to stay in some sort of balanced state. So what the kid is doing is they're seeking stress, and stress the stress wakes them up, but they overdo it. And they overdo it to the point where they can't get rid of all this extra stress that's built up inside their nervous system. Uh, and so they may have a tantrum or they, or they begin to insist on themselves. But what they really need at this point is they need to be regulated. In fact, they need to be down regulated. We need to help them calm and soothe themselves uh, to get rid of this extra stress and return to this state of of balance, of being calm. Uh, the important point here is that children at the age of two or two and a half are learning how to how to regulate themselves. They're just starting to, they're like a novice driver. And they don't do it very well. And so what happens is quite often, the child ends up developing what are called maladaptive ways of self-regulating. And this is another reframing. So I'll give you a nice example. Uh, My own clinic was for young children on the spectrum, kids with autism. And for these kids, uh, they find things highly stressful that a neurotypical child doesn't. So, for example, they find social interaction very stressful. And um, it's the stress coming from the, the caregiver's voice or being touched or proximity, lots and lots of things that they find very stressful. A lot of these children deal with this stress by gaze aversion, turning away. This is a way of blocking the stress, of of trying to avoid or suppress the stress. I I hope I'm explaining this well enough.
0: Yeah, I think it's good to show the extreme example uh, because it's it's very helpful, yes.
2: Okay, now this is a problem. Why is it maladaptive? So it's maladaptive because the child, the two or two and a half year old, really needs these social interactions to learn all kinds of things, to learn language to learn the meaning of facial expressions, to learn how to read what, others, what other people are thinking or feeling. By gaze averting, what the child is doing is they're blocking the stress of the moment, of the social interaction, but they're also blocking all these other things that they need to learn from social interaction. So what we needed to do in our own clinic was um, we needed to figure out how can we reduce the stress of the social interaction so that the kid actually enjoys being with mom and dad or whoever, grandparents, so that the child can attend to their faces, to their movements, and learn? And that's essentially, uh, we ran a a seven-year study on this, and uh, what we learned is that if you can reduce the stress whether it's physical stress, emotional stress, social stress, whatever the stress is, the child will naturally engage with the caregiver and, in fact, will begin to turn to the caregiver when they're overstressed. And this point is huge. Uh, you said in your introduction, you know, we're living in harrowing times. Uh, the stress on children and teens is, is the highest I've ever seen in my, in my career. And what we need is for them to have adaptive ways of self-regulating, of dealing with their stress, not maladaptive. So maladaptive, that might be holding up on your computer and playing video games to distract yourself or watching movies. Or if it's teens, what we're seeing is, you know, an epidemic of um, uh, drinking or, or experimenting with marijuana. The adaptive way dealing with their stress today is the first uh, and most effective way is to go to your caregivers. It's it's, it's to get that comfort that uh, only the caregiver can provide, that soothing presence to reduce the stress and figure out a strategy. What we're seeing today is, as you know, um, I was looking at your website, as you know, we're seeing an explosion of mental health disorders in children and teens. And these are the result of two factors. Uh, one factor is the very, very high levels of stress, different kinds. But the other factor is the explosion of maladaptive ways of dealing with that stress rather than healthy, soothing, growth-promoting ways of dealing with stress. So that's essentially what we learned by delving deep into the bottom levels of the brain.
0: So, Stuart, what do we do in the context, let's say, of what's happening right now? We have a massacre of babies in yep. in a school, and you have children from 6 to 16 who have access to that information. Let's start with the the children who are the same age. How do you, because they, you know, I hear parents have all, you know, I guess deal with this in very different ways. They they don't want the, the six-year-old to, to watch television or to see it or to see what happened in a magazine or, and and so that's one way. Is that adaptive, maladaptive? Can we talk about exactly what, to, how to do this, how to reframe things in, in the, as I said, in the context of all this um Okay. horror that's happening so, yeah. now. So
2: yeah. Catherine, that's a great, it's a great question. And it applies not just to the kids or to teens, but to the parents as well. So what's happening is we are seeing a generation that are being traumatized. And this is a word that is swung around a lot. Um, and we know that trauma um, has long-term uh, downstream effects. Um, it affects mental health, it affects uh, your well-being and so on. We know this. One of the things that we've learned by this ability that we now have to see what's happening deep inside the brain is we have this uh, understanding of what's called the neural access. And what that means is is that essentially you have uh, deep inside the brain, uh, Catherine, tell me if this is too complex, okay? Deep inside the brain, you have uh, the brain stem, and that controls, say, breathing, and you have just above that what's called the midbrain. And the midbrain um, has, and this is a, a really important point, the midbrain has self-regulating mechanisms. The original definition of self-regulation was uh, defined by an American uh, physiologist called Walter Bradford Cannon. Uh, and it starts with these mechanisms that control things like being with other people, controls our body temperature, and a lot of things that it controls. When the stress is too great, these, self, these, these mechanisms, self-regulating mechanisms get over—they're over—, uh, they're over Stretched, They become dysregulated. The kid goes into homeostatic imbalance. And what that means, that's a technical term, and what it means is that the child is now at the very depth of their brain. They're in an overstressed state. And this stress goes up the neural axis. It goes into the middle part of the brain, the limbic system, the things where the child feels things. So the child feels fear and anger. These get, these get aroused, hyper aroused, by what's happening deep inside the brain, and then it flows further up the neural axis, and it flows up into what the child says or what the child does. And now what we find is the child is saying, I don't know, he's saying mean things, or he's he's, he's become very oppositional, and our attitude until until 20 years ago was that we have to teach the kid. We're going to punish them. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, uh, use firm discipline so that they don't act in this way. But the problem is coming from deep inside the brain. The problem is coming from the lowest levels of the brain that have become hyper-aroused. Okay. So well, how are we I- going to help our kids?
0: So how are we going to help him? That, yeah, because you've defined it really yeah. well. This is what's happening okay. with these kids who are being traumatized. But in practical terms, what do we do with that six-year-old when he goes to school and an eight-year-old tells him things it's about what happened um, in Texas at, that his parents are not telling him about or the, he wasn't aware of because kids at six are out in their real world? What do we actually do as parents to mitigate, well, to reframe, uh, the trauma.
2: Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to focus our efforts on the bottom level of the brain. We're going to soothe that bottom level. We're going to get everything. Uh, we're going to get everything um, uh, back in balance. And we have all kinds of signs in our in our child. Uh, give me two, uh, Let me answer it in two ways. We have all kinds of signs uh, when that system's out of balance. So, for example, our child's voice changes. Uh, their skin color changes we have we can read when they're, when the bottom of the brain is uh, is is out of whack so now what we 've got to do is the second part is we have to soothe that bottom part of the brain. How do we do it? Well, there are obvious ways that we do it we, um, we you know make sure that the child's eating properly, exercising sleeping properly, but the number one need that that child has is um, for social connection with us. And here, it doesn't really matter what you say because this part of the brain, all it's processing is that you make me feel safe. The number one need that these children have right now from us is to feel safe in our presence. And that might mean very low, soothing vocalizations, it might mean a little caress, a hug as much as they need. So what we're doing is we're turning off, and literally we're stimulating a deep part of the brain um, called the periventricular nucleus. What we're doing is we're, these, these neurons have been agitated. So through our, through our just gentle presence, soothing, not explaining, not teaching. Um, what we can do is we can turn off these systems, turn off these alarms. And we're going to do the same thing with, with the child's emotions. If the child is very frightened, what we need to do is instead of uh, trying to explain to the child that you don't need to be afraid, these are it's very difficult for a child to absorb what you're saying. What we really need to do is turn off the bottom part of the brain, which is keeping the fear... Uh, keeping that fear alarm activated. So we soothe, and we figure out, for every child, there's something different that's soothing. We figure out, how do we soothe this child? Uh, And the reality is that I have a 20-year-old who is on the spectrum, and he has been traumatized by this as much as anyone. He needs to be soothed. He does not need to be lectured. He does not need to be pushed. This is a difficult time for them to go through. And what they need is the safety and security that only we as adults, whether it's caregivers or educators or whoever's with these children, they need the same thing from us. It's, it's called the interbrain. They need a secure brain-to-brain hookup where they know that we will keep them safe, that we will protect them.
0: So soothing, protecting, calming, all of those words are, you've, you're just describing how much probing do we do? Like you're giving the example, let's say, and I'm going back to the six-year-old cause I have a six-year-old grandson and two, four-year-olds who are twins. And how much do you have to know where this behavior is coming from or you don't the, or, or do you know what I'm like? How much? I do. Yeah. Okay. That's the question.
2: Okay. So, you know, we've, uh, when I was training in psychiatry, we had all these methods that we were taught for working with, with young children. So you use dolls to help them express the emotions that they're, that they're uh, uh, undergoing. But what we've learned is that all of these techniques, and these are wonderful techniques, um, only work. They are only effective if the child is calm. If the child is in, and the same is true, by the way, for adults. So you cannot argue with someone who is in a hyper aroused state. So there are, we want to help them work through these emotions. I think that was the word you used, and we have to do this, but not uh, not until we know that they are in a state where they can. Um, uh, I'll just make this very simple. These emotions, as such, are fleeting. They're ephemeral. That's the point of an emotion. The child has a fear, but they need to learn that that emotion will pass, and they will feel good again. This is one of the problems that we have, going back to your earlier example, of of working with toddlers. For the toddler, um, the emotion feels uh, catastrophic. Um, It feels, uh, you know, if they're afraid, whatever, And it's so catastrophic that perhaps what the child does is deals without emotion, say it's anger or fear, by trying to suppress it, avoid it, run away from it. But we now know that the child needs to be able to express that emotion. They need to see that they can express it with us, that they will not be, uh, let's say it's anger that they can express their anger without being afraid that we're going to abandon them or or, or withdraw from them or avoid them. So they can safely experience that emotion knowing that it will pass. So that's what we do. So what we do is we get the, the child has to be in that calm state where we can begin to explore the emotions that the child is experiencing helping the child realize that as emotions, they will feel good again. The fear will pass, that it is just a momentary thing. Um, And throughout all this, so whether we do it with dolls or whether we do it with, you know, stories or gentle questioning, however we do it, we have to constantly read the signs of when this is too much, when this is overloading the child. Now, there's no rush. And so we'll back off. We need the child to get back into that safe and secure state. Um, uh, there's a wonderful expression that we use uh, in Spanish, calatina and that's how we do this with children, slowly, step by step. And what we find is, over time, this isn't something that we're going to fix in, in you know, one session. Over time, they will begin to be able to explore this part of their life, this remote, the fears that they've now got, without running away from them, without avoiding them, um, and, and emerge from this uh, healthy. What's unhealthy is if we try to get them, if, uh, and I think this is where you were heading, what's unhealthy is if we encourage them to repress all this, if we encourage them to run away from this, suppress it. Um, because we, we now know that that will lead to further problems, um, if not right away, certainly when they get older.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. We only have a few minutes left, but I think yeah. We, in addition to suppressing, very often as a mother, <laughs> uh, I could, I get you know parents have begin to have their own tantrum. They get <laughs> embroiled yeah. in this right, okay. and and their own meltdown, yeah. which obviously is not helpful. Um, there, I mean, there's so much more uh, in the book, obviously, that we can talk about. So I want to mention the book again, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society. And I'm talking to Stuart Shanker, who is the author of the book. Um, one of the just one last, I guess, comment is one of the things that you say that, you know, our behavior, if it's not working uh, and is not fixed, we can change that. We can change the paradigm yeah. at any point in our lifespan, because I think that's a really important point that you do make.
2: Yeah, and this is your life your own life's work and what we've discovered is yeah. there's never a point in the lifespan where a trajectory can't be changed.
0: Yeah. All right, so website and or websites that we can go to for more information um about the book and about the work you're doing.
2: I think the best one would be uh, self-reg.ca. There's all kinds of things you can download for free and all kinds of courses you can take if you want to learn
0: more. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: Uh, keep 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 doing what you're doing, Catherine. Yep. The
0: world needs and you, and you too. Keep up the good work. Okay. Yes, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show.